Hello there and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. Dis and misinformation is rampant in the online world and its impact has real-world consequences on everything from vaccine uptake to war propaganda. Today's guest, Mark Little, CEO and co-founder of Kinzen, has made it his mission to help keep online communities safe from harmful content. Kinzen provides data and research to trust and safety professionals, content moderators and public policy makers. A former TV news anchor and foreign correspondent, Mark also founded the social news agency Storyful and led Twitter's media team in Europe. On this episode, I chat with Mark about his unusual career path from journalism to a business combating dangerous misinformation and hateful content. We also talk about how that fight is going and the scale of the battle we're up against. It's a conversation that has never been as timely as it is right now. So let's head over to studio to talk to Mark Little. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome to the show. My pleasure, Liam. Thanks for having me. You've had a remarkable journey to this point before founding Kinson. I'd love to talk a bit about it. Where did your interest in journalism come out of? Well, I was one of those very precocious kids. I think at the age of maybe six or seven, I used to fight for the Irish Times in the morning with my father. (laughs) And I think at about sort of maybe nine or 10, I realized I never had enough natural talent to be my true passion, which was to be center forward for Liverpool. (laughs) And basically, the only thing I remember falling back on was what someone, I suppose, my religion teacher pointed out to me in a report card about 14 years old, said I was prematurely cynical. <laughs> and it got together you know, a fierce curiosity about the world, a certain skepticism, and also just a passion for, you know, change. I just was obsessed with how the world worked and why certain people seemed to be able to see around the corner and see what was going to happen next in politics or business or whatever. And and that was the particular grain or kernel that began with journalism, but then kind of stayed with me throughout my career. Was politics big in your family? Absolutely. I mean, it was front and centre growing up, I suppose, back in the 1970s and 1980s. If you were not interested in politics, then you you weren't aware or awake. (laughs) We were living in Ireland right then, which was still dominated by a very sort of regressive church-dominated society. We were still the poor people of Europe. Immigration was at record high, unemployment record high. And then looking abroad internationally when I was growing up and as a student activist in the 80s, I mean, we had, you know, everything was going on. It It was kind of apartheid, what was happening in Central America, what was happening in the United States, you know, all over the world. It just felt like there was a tectonic shifts in everything that was going on. Now, in Ireland, it took a while before that actually became apparent. But yeah, growing up in an environment where everything felt so consequential to the point of, you know, nuclear apocalypse was Mm. something that thought about deeply. And everyone did on the planet well through the 80s until the fall of the Berlin Wall. So that, you know, is just to give you a sense of how consequential it felt to be alive in a period of huge anxiety, but also, if you were politically minded, huge excitement and challenge. And did I read right that your first gig was in the advertising department of the Communist Party's (laughs) magazine in the UK? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a funny thing. Back then, there was a very 
which became Tony Blair, actually. But there was a lot of people on the left who were very much into culture and were influenced what was happening in, at that time, it was Glasnost and Perestroika. So there was this uh, group of people who would have been called sort of the new left or the Euro-communists. And I was fascinated by that magazine. It was called Marxism Today in London. And I just happened to, you know, I was working in a car park and I was working at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> and I just happened to, you know, chance my arm and say, hey, any any gays going in, in Marxism today? And turned out that uh, <laughs> one of the jobs was not even selling the advertising, was collecting the advertising. Right. So I'd have to ring up sort of granola producers and people doing, you know, producing foodons and, and advertising, you know, holidays in Bulgaria and sort of slightly threatening them, you know, demand the money that they the pledge to pay for advertising. But in the process, I got so that, that summer was in London in 87. Um, I got to see, which was a cultural movement at the time, Red Wedge, Billy Bragg, you know, there was the, at the minor striker had just mm. ended and there was a kind of a, a real sense that Thatcher was uh, the biggest person on the international scene. So living in London in 87 and being part of broadly a left movement, not necessarily a communist party, which was kind mm. of on the way out. Yeah, that was a real eye opener for me because I was a student radical. And to get to be in places like the Trade Union Congress and meet some of the, the people who had really created change in Britain and were on that cutting edge, that was uh, a real eye-opener. But uh, also I learned how to flip burgers and uh, how to cook the perfect chicken McNugget in the same year. <laughs> and actually, one thing, Liam, that, that same summer was 87, when the IRA campaign was at its height. Uh, I worked in this car park and one of my jobs was to drive around about four or five in the morning, the long-term car park, to check if there were cars there for more than a week. Wow. Because they, because they feared the IRA were going to plant a bomb there. And so there I was, an Irish young fella, with a Pakistani as well. I remember a guy from Pakistan and the both of us were responsible <laughs> for reporting to the special branches that came in in the morning what cars had been there too long. So, you know, again, just a reminder that politics was in everything at that time. It was kind of felt like the oxygen that surrounded us. Wow, that's nuts. And, and, and then I suppose like all of that kind of makes sense in terms of your career then in journalism and, and moving to the National Broadcaster. I mean, you, you pretty much went to work for the National Broadcaster in Ireland, like straight out of college, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, I was so young that actually when I went on to get my first big job in Washington, I mean, I was told to, to maybe grow a moustache or wear blue, <laughs> which apparently makes you look older. So I was really young. You know, what happened to me, I suppose, coming out of the back of college that I realized I didn't want to be in politics. I wasn't particularly ideological, really, in the end of the day. I wasn't partisan. And I was, as I say, fascinated by change. So I went to DCU to do a journalism course. And before that course even finished, uh, RTE were advertising for people to join them. Um, I did, and I think within about 24 hours, my first report was of a prison riot out in Fisborough, North Dublin, where I was on top of a roof and I had to broadcast on the six o'clock news on a mobile phone, which, believe me, was a massive technological <laughs> a innovation at the time, talking to the Anne Doyle, the, the anchor person. And I was so bad that when I came back to the office, my boss said to me, don't listen back to that. That won't be a good... <laughs> <laughs> that won't be inspiring you for the future. So, yeah, I was sort of a huge work ethic, maybe not initially a great talent for broadcasting, but it was a tremendous time. And at that stage, I was, what, 24, to be given the chance to start to report on some of the big issues. Yeah, it was a dream come through. true. It was like... You had a, like, I mean, your career then in journalism, you know, spanned 
almost 20 years, am I right? That's right, exactly. Yeah. What prompted you to move out of journalism after a hugely kind of successful career, you know, Washington correspondent and, and presenting primetime, one of the big shows in Ireland? What prompted that? Well, I think I started to realise that that things had changed and to, you know, to use an old phrase, that the means of production of journalism and news had gone from being a person like me, the man on the telly, standing in war zones. Uh, I remember being in Afghanistan and it was in Kandahar in the south of the country and remembering, you know, it was very frustrating because I was sitting there very much listening to somebody interpreting for me what was going on on the ground. Mm. And suddenly I realized that the, the old golden age of journalism was very undemocratic. I mean, it was really, it was people like me, the gatekeepers, telling people at home who sat down at a certain time at night to listen to me, the man on the telly, telling them what was true and what mm. was real. And suddenly what happened was at the same time I saw Twitter and YouTube emerging at the same time. And I remember it was uh, a, a protested election in, in Iran in 2009. And Iran was my story. It was one of those things every foreign correspondent has a story, gets under their skin. Mm -hmm. I remember watching from home in Dublin, people on the streets, 17, 18 year olds using Twitter, using social media to deliver the most visceral, authentic reporting of what was going on. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is gonna change everything. And most of the journalist contemporaries of mine were scared and fearful of mm. this democratic re revolution. For me, I just saw this opportunity. What would happen if we could combine old-fashioned storytelling and truth-telling and journalism with this revolutionary new democratic awakening that we can see in these platforms? And that became the moment when I looked forward 25 years and said, if I don't do this now, I will regret this for the rest of my life. And I always think as an entrepreneur, you know, you have to think about what the Talmud says, the great old Jewish religious text. It says, you know, if not me, who? If mm. not now, when? Yeah. And I had that moment and that was, there was no way back. So you went off and you created Storyful and like you said there, I love the, you know, the, the, the great tagline from Storyful was news from the noise of social media. What was it like going from journalism to founding, you know, a business? It was like watching the water in winter and you'd think, oh, wouldn't it be great to go for a swim? And then you jump in <laughs> and you are paralyzed by the cold. I mean, a year into the venture with Storyful, you know, we couldn't raise finance. I thought the thing was going out of business. It was brutal. I had staked everything, my reputation, all my money on this venture. And it looked like it was going out of business. And I remember a Christmas Eve driving down to see my family and feeling the weight of the world on me. And it was only when I realized my worst thought, which was, well, the business will go out of business, but I'll get a job and I'll recover from that. And I just learned that when you confront your worst fear in a early startup, particularly, it will never haunt you again you know, because mm. you've confronted it. That's the worst can happen. And what I started to realize was, as a journalist, I was about survival. Like I had to be in a war correspondent. I had remembered days when I could work at a fraction of whether I'd be killed or wounded. Yeah. But I had never thought about resilience. What happens when every day you've got to get up and it's hard? Mm. And that was the big difference for me. The secret of being a great entrepreneur was not survival. And, you know, failure is not an option. 
it's resilience and actually failure is built into the model it is not only not a, it is an option it's something you have to put up with so it was a real change in mindset there were many similarities but but there was a big change in mindset required what was it like because like you know like you said you know a lot of journalists were kind of fearful of it but but this is an entirely new form of journalism and we probably didn't know it at the time but totally pioneering well, we, we kind of could see it happening in practice while people were trying to work it out in theory. So, uh, for example, during the Arab uprisings, which happened around well, start 2010 in Tunisia and went through Egypt and Syria, etc., we were seeing in our small, tiny startup in Ireland that on the ground there were democratic activists that were trying to get the story out from places like Aleppo. And they started to realize that we were watching them and looking at them. And they would do things like tilt up the camera to show a minaret, which, which would help us geolocate that image. Ah. They would help us by putting up newspapers and telling us what the day it was and what location they were in. And we started to develop a collaboration then with the people on the ground that were the eyewitnesses to history. And of course, we were bringing a journalistic rigor. So when Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan, we were immediately in with satellite imagery to analyze the nature of the helicopter that had crash landed in the compound. We could direct journalists to the physical location because it was being incorrectly described. And in that process, there was a new form of open source journalism that was at once democratic because our primary sources were people right there on the ground, not other journalists. But at the same time, it had the same rigor of investigative journalism we had our own, own accountability. So, you know, it almost emerged, not by accident, but certainly we didn't plan to create a new form of journalism. It evolved organically from this democratic awakening that I think in the first wave of social media was the dominant force. And, and today, many of the storyful alumni are now working in big news organizations like the New York Times or CNN or the BBC or the Washington Post bringing that new form of journalism that we were part of with Storyful. So then in 2013, you sold Storyful to News Corp, moved to New York to help with the transition, but eventually came back to Dublin to take on the role of managing director in Twitter Dublin. Were you kind of longing for the next big thing to do off the back of Storyful? Um, not really. I mean, when you think about it, I, I, I'd had a career at this stage already now of working for Marxism today, having worked for Rupert Murdoch, having worked for Jack Dorsey and the Irish taxpayer. So I had a pretty good range from an, at least an ideological perspective of working for different people. And I come at the back of Storyful, I have to say, you know, really fascinated by Twitter. Like I had fallen in love with Twitter quite clearly. It changed my life. And I really wanted to get into the heart of the machine. I didn't have a great desire to do another startup. In fact, I asked another contemporary of mine, another media startup founder, kind of per, for permission <laughs> not to do it again. <laughs> I just wanted to see, could I make an impact inside a, at that stage, Twitter was a fairly large corporation. Could I help bring some change, some of the energy into the business of Twitter? So that's why I chose to do that. It was a real chance to get inside a platform that had changed everything in my business to see if I could have an impact. And it was only by accident that it meant me coming back from New York, where I was very happy and I had my kids in school and, you know, back to Dublin, which coincidentally happened to be the international headquarters. But I wanted to take a break from the startup life and see what it would look like if I was inside a bigger corporation. 
So where did Kinzen come out of? What, what was the, the genesis seems to be kind of born out of the flames of Storyful to a certain extent. It was actually born, I think, out of frustration with mm. that big corporation called Twitter. I loved working there. But it was, you know, to be quite honest, it wasn't particularly well run. And in the end, my division, the media partnership team, basically was got rid of internally in Twitter. So I could have stayed on in a nice corporate job. But meanwhile, the U.S. presidential election had happened in November 2016. I had seen many of the problems that we had spotted in their earliest incarnation in the Arab uprisings, where we could see people using social platforms not as a democratic tool, but as a weapon. They could get in and they were using the virality of video on places like YouTube and Twitter to actually engineer false stories that suited them because they were either propagandists or a conspiracy theorists. So the first wave of the internet, which was a storyful time, was a democratic awakening. And then when 2016 happened and I was inside Twitter, I realized, oh, holy shit, this is now being turned into a weapon. Mm. And the weaponization of social media, of the internet, was what I was seeing, not just because of Donald Trump. That was definitely a big issue. But there was deeper issues where suddenly the virality, the business model, the algorithms were being hijacked by people who were opposed to democracy. And that was the birthplace and, and the idea that led me to go back to Anya Kerr, who was my trusted, most trusted colleague, and say she was at Facebook at the time, what if we did something to give power back to citizens to allow them to protect themselves against this emerging threat? And we both jumped. We kind of set out to begin with to give people a news feed they could control. Mm. But obviously, as we moved on, like every great startup, there were evolutions of the idea. But it was all you know, in this notion that the first wave of democracy was now being replaced by a new dark force on the internet, which was turning it into a weapon. And that was the inspiration for what became Kinzen. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that Technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So I suppose just for listeners who don't know, like and you've described a bit there, but what is Kinzen? Who, who is the user of Kinzen? So we basically help the big tech platforms and emerging platforms as well to protect the world's conversations from information risks. Now, by that, we mean 
dangerous misinformation that actually creates real world harm, organized disinformation and hateful and violent speech. So our customers are trust and safety professionals, policy professionals, the people who are inside these companies desperately trying to get ahead of these information threats and risks instead of, you know, reactive uh, fact checking. So from that point of view, we're using a combination of good old fashioned human analysis and, you know, the latest stages of machine learning that allows us to solve the wicked problem that these platforms face, right? Which is number one, humans never scale to match the problem, Mm. but the machines themselves don't have the human insight to detect these information risks in multiple languages and multiple different formats. And that's the problem that Kinzen's trying to solve. We're scaling the human solution to this particular information crisis. So kind of taking those editorial skills from Storyful and and coding them into the machines to kind of give them those values. Exactly. And we, you know, the human in the loop machine learning uh, approach, which has only really become possible in the last couple of years since we've had access to these big language models like BERT, you know, where we can come in and our analysts are creating machine readable data in variety of languages, which has been pushed into the machine and the machine is transcribing and translating and trying to understand and the human data is helping it learn quicker. So it's a beautiful feedback loop between a small expert group and really advanced machine learning systems that are exponentially greater in their capacity now than they were even four years ago. Just how big is the scale of misinformation at the moment, would you say? Well, I think what's happening right now is it's kind of getting worse before it gets better. So Mm. it's not that everybody who's online is going to see it. What's happening is the places where misinformation and disinformation is particularly uh, problematic is in places where it's, it's life or death. So, for example, right now in India, you know, we see almost genocidal levels of rhetoric coming from supporters of the government toward Muslims in that country. You know, it's on bordering on hateful speech. We're seeing organized extremist far-right groups, neo-Nazis in Europe, organizing together using the virality of platforms to spread their message. And obviously we're seeing it then in conspiracy theories around health topics, Mm. not just COVID, but people trying uh, to promote conspiracy thinking in mainstream conversations. So I think the key issue right now is not whether people are saying the wrong thing on the internet. It's not about disputes between people over politics. It's not even about Donald Trump or what he gets on Twitter. What we're looking at is in the multitude of languages and threats where there's actual real world harm and possibly life or death situations. And that's where we're focused. Currently in about 13 languages, very soon 26 languages, You know, it's in places like Brazil right now that's having a hugely consequential election in October that may be a rerun of what happened in 2020 in the United States. So many people think we're trying to sort out what's true or false. It's not just about that or even primarily about that. It's where we can stop something happening online that will have a real world impact and potentially life or death impact. And you mentioned the the Brazilian elections there, and I heard Anya Kerr on another podcast kind of talking about, you know, disinformation actors coming to realize that phrases like election fraud and rigged election were kind of alerting 
content moderators, you know, who could take down their false claims. So then these actors began substituting them for like stuff like, you know, we are campaigning for clean elections, you know, and, and that's where I suppose, like you, you mentioned, that human moderators can come in, spot those changes and kind of help the authorities intercept these messages. So, yeah, what you're talking about, I think, is what we see as the rise of what's being called now algo speak, which is where communities realize that, you know, there may be content moderation algorithms looking at what they're saying and they're trying to avoid it. And we're seeing words being invented. So during the pandemic, we saw anti-vax activists using the word panini instead of pandemic. Most recently in Germany, we saw the anti-vax community using the word for smurf. Because in German, the pronunciation of that word sounds very much like the pronunciation of the children's TV character. Last year, Uh, more seriously, in Scandinavia, we saw a neo-Nazi group changing a word associated with a traditional children's festival to become a racial slur. Now, this is what we're seeing constantly, is words being amended and changed. And of course, the machine is not being able to keep up with that. When something like the pandemic happens... Suddenly, in common parlance, we have all these scientific terms um, coming into our language. The machine is just not caught up. And that's where the human analysis is important to correct the machine, to add that little a bit of an alias. And so more and more inside Kinzen, we're starting to see the machine picking up on the evolution of language. So one word connected with another, Smurf connected with vaccine. Or, Mm. for example, in places like India, we see anti-Muslim activists, uh, you know, using words that may seem to be totally innocuous. But we can see they're part of a pattern of intimidation and hate speech. So, you know, this is why the human is so important. And, you know, we don't advocate for more content moderation. We don't advocate for, you know, laws banning disinformation and misinformation. I think that's absolutely the wrong way to go. We're looking for more precise content moderation that can actually pick the needle in the haystack that is dangerous while allowing the maximum freedom of speech. And that's, for us, the long-term goal. We cannot have safety by decree, governments banning content. We need to redesign the platforms so that the machines and the humans that are working in content moderation are getting more exact, more precise, more timely and getting ahead of the problem instead of reacting to it. So, well, I was going to ask, is, is misinformation a tech problem or a human problem or, or perhaps a bit of both? Listen, that, that's a, one of those great existential questions that always <laughs> people think, you know, like technology made me do it. Technology yeah. made the world dumb, you know, like, I mean, I just don't go for that. I remain an evangelist for the democratic potential of the kind of technologies that we now kind of take for granted or are starting to dislike intensely. So I think it's very much that there is things in human emotion that the business model and the way the algorithms were primed initially with social media Mm. that do take advantage of our worst instincts. And I think we can redesign this technology to liberate our best intentions. And I think part of that is going to be having much better filters that the ordinary person can access in the way they browse the internet. So right now we work with, you know, centralized moderation teams inside the tech platforms. My guess is over the next two to three years, more and more the platforms will try to decentralize power to the ordinary person to set their filters, you know, to say, listen, I don't want to hear 
extreme language in my feed or someone else might say, well, actually I do. I want to see what the other side is, is thinking mm. and saying. So I think a lot more power to the average user, a lot more precision about content moderation. And again, it will be, you know, humans solving a human problem using technology and redesigning the technology that will be the, the broad solution here. But it will take time. And we're, I think, only in the beginnings of this, because remember, the big platforms that exist today will be replaced by new platforms that right now are being, you know, incubated by some 17-year-old in Bratislava. <laughs> so, you know, I think we really have to be aware of some developments that could make the problem worse before they get better. We in Kinzen are pioneers of audio content moderation. So we've been analyzing the way in which misinformation, disinformation, hate speech spreads through live audio, through podcasts. And we think the spoken layer of the internet is an area that we need to focus on with high degrees of importance now for the next couple of years. And I was going to just ask you about that just before we wrap up, because, you know, as you say, there's just countless hours of audio. What problem is that presenting to you like and, and to fact checkers? It's kind of like a perfect storm of combinations that you have now. Obviously, with live audio, you've got the speed. If you look in the podcast, I mean, many of these podcasts are hours and hours long. And then the most important and biggest challenge is language. I mean, there's thousands mm. of languages spoken every year. You know, if you're analyzing something in India, you might be listening to someone speaking in Hindi, but they'll jump into English every now and again. So what we're very conscious of is, and this is where the machine learning is so fascinating, you know, you have automatic speech recognition, a key part of machine learning. But again, you can tweak that if you know what you're looking for with some human signals. We can, you know, allow the language model to get better, to be optimized, to listen out for, you know, not just a, a, the sound of a word, but the relationship between language. So I think for me, and I'm a journalist, right? I'm not a techie by, by uh, <laughs> training. So a lot of this stuff makes me you know, sometimes wonder um, and as I try to keep up with it. But I think what's really important for audio is that we are looking out for the way people speak, their tone of voice. Arabic, for example, is basically one language if you write it down, but it's multiple different dialects when you speak it. And mm -hmm. that, for me, is what's most, I suppose, troubling in one way, but also most exciting. Can we start to use machines and humans together to interpret the meaning of language, what people are, not just what they're saying, but how they're saying it. That is the big challenge of audio moderation. But I also think it's one of the most exciting challenges to be working on. And only the human in the loop system is going to be able to detect those things like irony or sarcasm or mm. slang or algo speak, as I've described already. <laughs> and that's why I think the approach that we have is not just more effective, but ultimately more democratic. Because again, we want the least possible kind of intervention, but the highest level of precision. And that's where obviously the mix of human and machine is just so vital right now, I would argue for democratic debate. Brilliant. Well, Mark, thanks very much for joining me today. Liam, it's my pleasure. Let's do it again soon. That was Mark Little from Kinzen. You can find out more about Kinzen at kinzen.com. If you enjoyed the conversation, why not help spread the word and give the episode a shout out on social. Tag at Intercom. We'd love to hear from you. I'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Intercom. Thanks for listening. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.